today's scripture reading is from John 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community. My name is Tim um, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you uh, with us. And if you want to turn to John 1, um, that's where we'll be uh, this morning is, is right there. And, uh, and that's where we've been the last few weeks. And, and kind of our, our hope for this Advent season has been, um, has been that you would believe. And John is explicit about why he wrote this gospel is, is so that we would believe Um, And to be convinced that Jesus is the one way to a rich and true and and full, abundant life. And so we want to believe. And yeah, John, spending all this time through his gospel to get us to believe, I think John has an assumption, and it's an assumption I share with him, which is, if John has to write, go at great lengths to get us to believe, I think it means that belief is, is difficult, the centering your life around Jesus is not, it's not automatic, it's not easy, it's not simple. And especially when it comes to knowing God or experiencing God, there is, there is between us and God just a gap or a distance. So why? Why this distance? Why is belief so difficult? And to be clear, for me, it's, it's not a matter of so much of like huge scientific questions, although those, those are important, or intellectual questions, those are in, important. But there are times for me when I sit down to pray or to read or to study, to, to experience God. And the question for me is, is rarely, is there a God? It's, it's more along the lines of, of, am I alone? So belief, it's not just difficult, belief is, is personal, and it's why as John gets to the end of this prologue, this intro into his story of the life of Jesus, he uses very personal words. He talks about belief in a very personal way. He uses, uses three words to kind of draw us into belief. The, the, word, the words flesh, glory, and, and see. That to believe in Jesus, for John, you, you, need, you need to have the flesh, you need to have the glory, and you need... To see, and so I want to take each of those uh, one at a time, and starting with with the flesh, and that's where that's where John starts in John one, which is uh, in verse fourteen. The word the word became flesh. And you have to remember uh, back a couple weeks ago when we started, John uh, begins this these first eighteen verses of his gospel by by making the point that Jesus is God. And so in verse one, you have in the beginning was the word, um, and the word was with God, and the word was. God. Jesus is, is God. John makes that, that, that very clear. And now what he's saying is this word, Jesus, who is God, becomes, becomes flesh. And I hope that word choice jumps out at you because flesh is a strange word. We don't use that word often. And, and the Greek word John uses is much like our word for flesh. It's sort of, there's sort of a, a strangeness to it. So the Greek word even sounds kind of strange. The Greek word here that John says Jesus became flesh is, is the word sarks, which just kind of sounds gross or disease. Like I have, I have, I have sarks, right? It doesn't sound 
Nice. Whereas there are much more appealing uh, Greek words John could have chosen. Like the Greek word for body is, is soma, right? Jesus could have, could have had a soma. And that's all, that sounds nice. I'd like to have one of those, right? Whereas Sarks, I don't want that. And so John is intentionally drawing out the strangeness um, of, of Sarks. And so when I think about flesh, like flesh reality, Sarks reality, I think back to the night that, uh, that Misty and I uh, got engaged. Um, and I planned out uh, the perfect evening, um, as you probably would have expected me to have planned out for a Misty. And uh, we're going to take her to her favorite Thai restaurant, favorite place in Indianapolis, kind of a romantic spot. That's where I was going to pop the question. And so we get there, first, first moment of the day is at the Thai restaurant. And when you order your food there, uh, it's this place in Indianapolis, they ask a question. On a scale of one to five, how spicy would you like your food? And, you know, you have to understand, like, Thai, thai hot is on a different level than us. You've got to play it safe with that. So I would always say two. And that's what I always got. And it was, it was always like, it was enough spice, but I was wanting a little more. And so, so tonight, the night I get engaged, they, they put the question, how spicy do you want your food? And I just, I just felt like living. Um, so I said, I said three. <laughs> and uh, you can probably can tell where this story is headed at this point. Um, because the, distant, the, dif- the difference in, in level of spice between two and three at this Thai restaurant was like the difference between... Um, sitting at a fire on a nice cool evening and letting the warmth slowly come to you and like shoveling the fire into your mouth. Like that was the difference between two. Like I don't even know what four and five are like if this is three. And, and so I take a bite of food and I can instantly tell like my mouth is on, on, on fire. My stomach is already a mess. I'm sweating. I can't feel my tongue. I'm going down at this point. <laughs> And so I, I just stop eating, and I, I remove myself from the table. I go to the, the bathroom just to try to collect myself. Like, am I going to die, right? Like, I felt like I was going to die, and I'm already nervous because I'm going to ask uh, Misty to, to marry me. So I basically go back. I don't eat any of my meal, and, of course, this is suspicious um, to, to Misty. But I, I get through the rest of the night just sweating and nervous, wanting to die, my stomach, and that. And that, to me, when I think flesh, that's what I think. Is this strange, like, embodied, limited constrained existence that God created for us, which is, is good. Like, Sarks isn't necessarily bad. Flesh is not bad, but it's, it's anything but glamorous. And so it's worth pausing for a moment why Jesus, who according to John in verse 3, created the world, and according to John in verse 1, is God, why he would, he would squeeze himself into, into human flesh, into skin and bones. And the reason he does that, John gets to too quickly. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus wanted to dwell with us. That's why he became flesh. And that's one of the central storylines of the entire Bible. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, that's right at the beginning, is God wanting to dwell with us, And so if you read uh, how Christianity understands creation, it's very different than how most other creation stories um, work. That, that for example, if you lived in the day Genesis 1 was written, most of the creation stories in that day uh, basically said, listen, the world exists, human beings exist, because the gods, they didn't want to do certain menial tasks. They didn't, there were certain works they just didn't want to do anymore. So they made us to do those things so they could go do what they really want to do. So human beings, right, the God does, gods don't want anything to do with us. We're sort of an afterthought to do meaningless things. That, that's creation the typical creation narrative of that day. Or you think of our own creation narrative, which is, is, is the most popular one in our day, in our culture, which is that um, there's no God and, and, and everything. Uh, uh, we became human beings or human beings came out of uh, millions of, of mutations over millions of years. 
um, um, from lesser developed beings to more developed beings, and there was no God in the process, and now we're human, we're here, which is, again, no God involved, no creation, of, of, or God involved in creation wanting to be near um, to us. But you get to Genesis 1, and it's just completely different. And so God creates human beings, but when he creates them, it, it depicts him as like living in a garden with them, walking with them, wanting to know them, wanting to be near them. He speaks to them. He cares for them. He creates for them. I mean, you will not find another creation story like this in, in the world. There's nothing like it. God wanting to be in the garden with his creation. Of course, you read further into Genesis 3, and that, that relationship breaks, and human beings begin to, to, to view God with a distrustful eye, and so the things that God had asked them to do, they begin to think, well, why would God ask us to do that? He must be a killjoy. He must not, he must not know what's best for us, and so sort of like human beings have done ever since, we see something that we think is good and we want to do that God's told us not to, and we do it, do it anyway. But what's interesting is that what breaks down in that relationship, in that moment, is not God running from us, but us running running from him. And so here's what happens in Genesis 3.8. God, God creates this garden to dwell with his people to be near him, and here's what happens, verse, verse 8. Um, and they, the man and the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so in the, the creation story, you have God creating this world to dwell with us, and us quickly running and hiding from him. And yeah, God doesn't stop pursuing to be near to us. So in the second book of the Bible, past Genesis into Exodus, um, God wants to get near to us again. And so what he does is he decides he's going he's gonna to primarily relate through one nation named Israel. And, and what he does is he removes them from a position of slavery in Egypt and frees them and is taking them into a land they're going to live and as they're, they're making this journey through, uh, through the wilderness, God says, you know what, this isn't even enough for me. I want you to build a tent, put it right in the middle of the camp, and I'm going to come dwell with you in the middle of the camp. That's why I'm going to live with you. I'm going to get closer to you. And so God, God does that. He literally tents with them <laughs> as they travel to the promised land. And that's important because in verse 14, when, when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word dwelt literally means live in a tent, the word became flesh to tent among us. And John is clearly pointing us back to this moment. As if to say, from the beginning, God's been wanting to get closer, to get nearer to us. So you read verse 14 of John 1. You read the whole of the Bible and you see this unmistakable reality that God will do anything to get near to us. He will get anything to get near to you. And that, of course, that raises the question I started with, which is, okay, well, if God is doing everything he can to get near to me, why is belief so difficult? Why does it seem like it's really hard for us to get near to him? And it's a good question, and the Bible does a lot with that question in a lot of ways, but I, think, I want to just redirect that question ever so slightly to say, well, okay, is, is God the one who is hiding, or, or is it me? Is it you? Is, uh, am I hiding, actually? Because I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. And that is, there are times when the last thing I want is for God to get involved in my life. Right? I've, I've got things rolling the way I want them. I can, I can handle things on my own. I have a plan that's much simpler and much easier. It makes much more sense, um, at least to me. Right? But sometimes the last thing I want is for God to start interjecting himself, making his demands 
No, and of course, remember what Jesus, uh, what John said about Jesus in verse 11, where we were last week. He said, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. All right, there, there, there's two like central threads uh, that, that run through the whole Bible, which is God does anything to get near to us, and we do anything to get away from him. Right? He'll go at great lengths to get closer and closer to us, and we will go at great lengths to get further and further away from him. So don't just push past that, that question. Do you really want God involved in your life? Telling you what your calendar should look like, where your priorities should be. Telling you who to, to speak more kindly to, telling you what you should do with, with your anger, your frustration. Do you really want God to start interfering with you? Because when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, he's, he's gotten near to start interfering with us to start getting involved in our lives, to get closer. And when, when God gets closer to us, it means we have to, we're going to have to change some things. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has done anything to get near to you. Will you would you do anything to get near to Him? Or are there limits? Um, the, to believe, we need to have God come in the flesh to get closer to us. There's a distance there. That's, that's point one. But second, what, where John goes next is he talks about glory. And so let's keep reading. The Word, it becomes flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is, a, this is a really beautiful sentence, but it's a little unfair because John is packing a lot of, of Old Testament theology into that, that sentence. And so to understand what John is saying there, you have to understand the book, um, the book of Exodus, which I started to, to unpack a little bit uh, a, minute, a minute ago. So back to God, he's tenting with his people, he's in the tent, in the middle of his people, dwelling among his uh, people. And what happens is the same thing that happened back in Genesis um, 3, which is God told them not to do something very explicitly. He said, don't make an image of me and then worship it like it's, it's me. And that may seem like a weird command to us, but... Um, you know, those of you who are parents, you know, you make weird commands to your kids all the time, but you're very clear. Don't do this thing, and then they go and they watch you while they, or they look at you while they do that thing. Well, that's sort of what happened here. God said, don't do this. Don't make an image. So the people are like, okay, well, let's get all the gold together, and let's make an image. And they do that. They make a little golden calf, and they worship it. They say, this, this little golden calf, it, it, it's the God who delivered us from Egypt. So God gets mad. and he go, Moses, who was the leader of God's people at that point, God says to Moses, that's it. I'm, I'm leaving I'm, I'm picking up my tent. I'm going somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not going to, my presence is not going to be with you anymore. And Moses says, like, basically his response is no. Like, if your presence isn't with us, then life isn't worth living. Like, your presence is the thing that makes life worth, worth living. And so they go back and forth, and Moses gets to this point where he says, God, like, the one thing we need is more of, of your presence. And I want more of your presence. And he says to God, show me your glory. Let me see you. Dwell with me here in this this place. And so Moses asked for that, which is, I think, interesting on two levels. One is that it's clear, even though Moses is with God on the mountain, there's still a piece of God he's not experiencing. So, like, even though he's had a religious experience none of you, none of us have ever had, he's, there, he knew there was still something missing there. And the other is, is he, wants, he wants to see God's glory, he wants to see his, his presence. And here's how God responds to Moses' request it's in Exodus uh, 33. It says, You cannot see my face. Uh, God speaking to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not, see, shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I, I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face 
shall not be seen. This is, this is strange, trippy stuff. So what's happening? What's going on? Um, and really two, two thoughts to unpack what's happening here. One is that God's glory, this is a super religious word, God's glory is, is his grace. And what I mean by that is, is Moses, Moses clearly understands that there's something about God he's not experiencing, he's not seeing, which is why even though he's speaking with God on the mountain, he says, show me your face, show me more of you, show me your, your glory. So even for Moses on the mountain, belief is hard, it's difficult. And God apparently agrees. He wants Moses to see something Moses isn't seeing or isn't understanding. And so God, God shows him his glory. And at the moment when God is showing Moses his glory, this is what we're told God speaks to Moses, what he says to Moses. What is the glory of God revealed to Moses? Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And commentators point out that at the center of this What God is showing Moses is two words. It's the words steadfast love and faithfulness. And so throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, after this, God says this, those two words show up together all of the time. Steadfast love and faithfulness. God's glory is his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And so when John, in in verse 14 of of John 1, says uh, Jesus was full of grace and truth, those two words, grace and truth, are a referent back to the two words in Exodus 34, steadfast love and faithfulness. They're the Greek equivalents of those Hebrew words. And that's important because what that means is is that God is saying, the glory we can't look at, that's his. The experience of him that we don't yet, we don't have the capacity to receive is, is his grace. It's his commitment to us, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. And that's why uh, Christians, when we say that people can become a Christian or start following God, we don't give people a list of things to do or to accomplish. Like once you do all these things, then you're good enough, then you're, then you're in. We don't, we don't give them a set of, of check, check marks to, to believe. What, rather, if you're, if you're going to become a Christian, if, if you're going to be inside the Christian faith, then that means you, ha- you, you know you can only approach God through Jesus, through his steadfast love and faithfulness, through his grace and his truth. We do not come to God on the basis of our glory or our record or what we have done. We come to God on the basis of his grace and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So God's glory is his grace. That's the only way we can get near to him, only way we can approach to him. But secondly, and this is still true, is that God's glory is a threat to us. I've always been fascinated by this idea if, you know, God says to Moses, if you see me, you die. It's like, what, what is that? What is happening with that? And I thought about, a lot about that this week. And here's the best way I can, I can describe this. It's that, um, uh, last year when, uh, um, when the Colts uh, played the Chiefs um, in Indianapolis, I got to go to the game and actually got to go down um, onto the field for a little bit. And, um, and I would say, like, compared to most human beings, um, I'm larger than most human beings. I'm a little bit taller, a little bit thicker than most human beings. It's okay. And, and so compared to the average human being, I'm a little bit bigger. And so, you know, I go down to the field and I see these NFL players and it is like I'm just scared. I'm terrified. They're huge. Um, in their pads, in their, uh, in their helmets, all taped, taped up. And they're, all they're doing is stretching and running basic drills. And I just look at them and I, re- I realize if I ever wandered onto an NFL field in the middle of the game, like I would die. 
Like I, and I would not be left in one piece. When I, like I'd be many pieces and they'd have to, it would be, it would be terrible because these, these human beings are huge, they're fast, they're strong. Right? It's like I, don't, I can't even, I can barely watch the game now, let alone actually try to get in to the game. They would break me. And here's, listen, here's the reality, and here's how I relate to this, to this moment with, with Moses, that um, the way that I approach life, and if you're willing to go there, the way you approach life, you know, the way I approach life, the ease with which I can, I can hold a grudge, the quickness with which I can get to some just weird, um, undisciplined un, uh, anger, the, the, the pride with which I can think myself superior to other people, I go about life in a very small, small Way far smaller than, than me standing next to an NFL offensive lineman. And, and the reality is if I want to get in on a life with God, like it's not, he's playing a, a different level game. I'm far too small for that. And if I get into that, if I get into life with him, his graciousness, his kindness, his mercy, his truth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crush me. I can't, I can't play in that game. I'm too small. And that's the dilemma we face as human beings, is that from the beginning, God has wanted to get nearer and nearer and nearer to us, to know us. But now something has happened where, where one, we run from him and hide ourselves from him, but two, he has to hide himself from us. He can't let us see everything. Because we've shrunk, we've become too small. He's dangerous to us. He's dangerous to the way I live. So there's no, it's no wonder that belief is hard. It's no wonder that we would ask, am I alone? Is there a God? Because the God who made us, the God whom we were made for, is, is dangerous to us now. And we hide from him. And so John, he's talked about the flesh. He's talked about the glory, which we can't encounter. So lastly, uh, John talks about seeing. And this is the last verse, verse 18, where John writes, No one has ever seen God. Of course, that should immediately make you think of Exodus, right? Moses, you can't look at me. No one can see God. But the only God is Jesus, who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. Now, there are two pretty stunning claims in, in that verse. And, but before we get there, I want to be, I want to be careful, because I think it's easy for us to think about John as, you know, someone who, well, of course John would believe. He's naive. He lived back then. They weren't very smart back then. They just, they would believe these sorts of things. Whereas we, you know, we're smart, we're educated, we don't believe those. And, and again, and we've tried to make this case each week, but first, John had every intellectual reason not to believe that you and I had. He maybe even had more. But even more than that, he had all kinds of personal reasons not to believe in, um, in Jesus. The one, he was a Jewish person, and Jewish people did not believe human beings could, were God. Like, that was just impossible to them. John's own brother was, was murdered for following Jesus, that John himself spent time in prison for Jesus. And so despite all of that, John still draws this conclusion that, that Jesus, in Jesus is abundant life, and in Jesus I saw something you will not see anywhere else. In fact, what John is saying in that verse, kind of the first stunning claim, is what John is saying is that I saw more than what Moses saw. I, I, the hand was not held over me. I saw the face. I saw the Father. I saw more than Moses saw. And you have to understand, like, that is a stunning claim for a Jewish person who that, like, Exodus 34 would have been, like, the high point of their, all their scriptures. And John is saying, I, I had it better than Moses. That's what he says. And in case you're wondering, well, maybe John was just weird. He was deceived. Well, no, like, Jesus made this claim 
himself. And so in John 14, when the disciples uh, are, are doubting him, and Jesus told them, I'm about to go away. And they're like, well, where are you going? What's happening? What's going on? And Philip, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, show us, show us the Father. Show us God. In a very similar question to what Moses asked in Exodus 34. And here's what Jesus responds to that question from Philip. When Philip says, show us, show us the Father. Here's what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, John is saying, I looked right at the glory of Moses. The, the glory Moses saw that couldn't, he would die, he was hidden from, I, I looked right at it. I saw it. And so as I, I said a minute ago, it's why in Christianity, the center of our faith, it's not a body of teachings. We, in other words, we, don't, we care about what Jesus taught us about how to live. That's, that's important. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not the center of our, our faith. That's why John says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Right? In other words, Moses had the law and he gave it. But Moses, Mo, Moses was important, but someone else, could have given, someone else could have given the law. It didn't have to be Moses. But, but grace and truth, right? steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34, that reality, God the Father, his grace and kindness towards us, that came through Jesus Christ. Not through a body of teachings, not through uh, a list of demands you have to meet in order to receive it. It came through a person named Jesus who was the glory of God. And so here is, is, is where we need to be careful as, as Christians, because our faith is so different. Is, and as most religious people, including a lot of Christians, what they do is they concoct a, sort of a, an elaborate religion as a way of avoiding a personal encounter with God. And so we, we, you know, we go to church, we do churchy things, we hang with churchy people, uh, and we do the externals. And we think the externals are what, what matter. And we, have, and we think, I've got enough externals. I do enough good things. I'm, I'm good with, with God. But John's saying that's not how you get. Grace and truth don't come through those things. They come through Jesus. They come through a person. Right? The, the center of our faith is an encounter with the person, Jesus, who became flesh and dwelt among us. So how can, how can you and I know? How can we know we're not constructing an elaborate list of rules to avoid God? What's the difference between someone who has designed a religion to avoid God, a direct encounter with him, and someone who is dealing with God, someone who is, is taking in the personal Christ through whom grace and truth come? And obviously there's a lot of ways we could answer that question, but I want to answer it thinking about Christmas in one way. The way you know you're not coming at God through rules. You're not coming at him through the law. You're coming at him through the person of Jesus is that you adore Christ. You adore Jesus. That you see in him something you know you will find nowhere else. That you see in him a glory and a kindness and a graciousness that silences your pettiness, that shames the smallness with which you approach life and calls you into a greater Life that, that have you, I mean, have you ever just paused and thought about what it means that Jesus became flesh at Christmas? What it means that in, in that manger is the God of the universe who made you and is trying to get nearer to you. Has, it, has that ever just sat back? You just sat back stunned in silence. That is true. In our faith, in Christianity, if, if Christianity is true, Jesus, creator of the world, became flesh to get to know you. It's an amazing, astounding thought. And, and Philip Yancey, in thinking through this question, he thought through his own experience in, in caring for uh, fish within an aquarium, within a fish tank. And he pointed out that when, 
know, when you have to clean a tank and when there's problems within the tank and it's, it's breaking down, what you have to do is you have to, like, you have to, like, violently chase the fish with, uh, with a net and get them, take them out of their home and put them in, you know, some other place so you can clean the tank and then make, make everything right. And he just compared that with, with our own encounter with, with the living God. And here's what he writes. He says, I often long for a way to communicate with the small brain water drillers. Out of ignorance, they perceive me as a constant threat. And I cannot convince them of my true concern. I'm too large for them. My actions too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they see as cruelty. My attempts at healing they view as destruction. To change their perception would require a form of incarnation. I would need to become a fish. And Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me more of yourself. And Moses says, I can't, I'm not going to chase you with a net. You'll die. Right? You don't understand my mercy. You don't understand my grace. All right, we interpret his mercy as cruelly, uh, cruelty, his works of healing as, as destruction. So God, he became, he became a fish. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And John says, I looked at everything Moses couldn't, couldn't see. And that's, that's claim one, and that's setting it up. But the second, the second claim in that is I looked, I looked at the glory and I didn't die. Right, which is how. Like, how can God say to Moses, if you see the glory, you die. And then John says, I saw the glory. I saw everything Moses talked about, and he didn't die. And the answer to that is it's the gospel. It's because someone else did. Because in Jesus, the glory of God was every bit as threatening to us as it was to Moses on that mountain. But, but at this point, God had become one of us. He became flesh. He had taken on weak and vulnerable flesh. So this time when the glory threatened us, we, we had the upper hand. We attacked. We put the glory on the cross. We tried to be rid of it. It was our last act of hiding from a God who was chasing after us to know us. And yet at that moment when we're running farthest from him, when we're doing our best to hide from him, he's getting even nearer and nearer to us. Because in that moment on the cross, as we put the glory up and killed it, he was doing everything necessary for us to come back, to come home, to encounter God, to see the glory and not die, to pay the penalty for our sin and our brokenness and our smallness of life. Because Jesus, even in the flesh, even in his weak human beings, he could have called on angels to save himself. He could have stopped the crucifixion, but he didn't. He didn't so we could see the glory, so we could behold him. And so this morning, if you're trying to get to know, to be with God in any other way but through the person of Jesus, if you're trying to do it through your intellect, if you're trying to do it through, through, through being a really good person and doing the right things, if you're trying to get to God through any other way than Jesus, you will always feel distant. There will always be a gap. You will always feel alone. You won't see. And yet at the same time, whatever you feel this morning, if you do feel distant from God and you wonder, is there a God? Does he care for me? Does he want to be near to me? Have I broken uh, that, that covenant? Have I stepped away from him in a way he would never get back? Then, then we, listen, John 1, Jesus has done all that he can to get nearer to you. There's nothing more Jesus could not do to get nearer to you. He gave his own life for you. And so may we stop doing everything we can to avoid him. Stop concocting religious paths of, of ways of avoiding God and just this Christmas stop and look and adore to look at his glory God the creator of the universe has become flesh to get closer to you God the, the creator of the universe sends his son 
to die on a cross for you so you could see the glory. So, O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. God, there is just no way we, we can use words or we can sing songs or we could pray prayers that could ever do justice to the beauty and the truth of the incarnation that Jesus took on our flesh and dwelt near to us. And so I just ask now, God, I've, I've done my best, but your spirit has to do that in us. God, it's so easy for us to walk in here and this to be just religious activity where we we hear a sermon, we sing songs, we take communion, we do the things we're supposed to do, and God, in that, miss the person of Jesus who's getting closer, getting near, suffering for us, dying for us. And so I think you won that even, God, even in our approach to you when we fail you and we come at you in the wrong ways, God, you, there's grace for that too. And I'm thankful that, God, no matter, no matter how we feel this morning, no matter where we're at, whether we believe, whether we don't, whether it was good week or bad week, you stand ready at your table to receive us. You continue, continually do all you can to get closer to us. God, help us to see what we must do to meet you, to receive you, to believe in you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.